Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we give you the top polling news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week's announcements. First and foremost, we want to give a big The Pollsters welcome or congratulations to friend of the show, Mark Blumenthal. We've had him on as a guest before. Uh, Just last week it was announced he's going to move to SurveyMonkey from uh, where previously he was the editor-in-chief at um, Huffington Post Pollster. He'll now be heading up SurveyMonkey's election polling unit. And actually, it was last week's show where we talked a lot about SurveyMonkey polls. And we said, oh, we got to get John Cohen from SurveyMonkey on right. the show. Well, now right. we have two SurveyMonkey people we've got to bring on the show to and, talk about. And I was on a cable news show that will remain nameless. And off camera, the host was like, what is this? SurveyMonkey? Monkey Survey? What is this? So now <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to remember that name, unnamed host. <laughs> I, by the way, fun thing for our, our listeners to go Googling around for, there's a clip out there on the Internet of one of the first television hits that Margie and I ever did together. We are on an unnamed show um, in 2012 in the host – Margie brings up Nate Silver, and the host does not know who Nate Silver is. Oh, God, I forgot about and, that. <laughs> and I'm kind of sitting there in the other booth, like, trying to keep a straight face, like, uh. I know. Well, maybe we need to have that person on the show. But uh, no. I don't think I don't think that. I don't think that's, that's not our scene. Um, uh, but th- this, what this then leads to is with Mark leaving Huffington Post pollster and the new sort of promotions and reshuffling of folks over there, Huffington Post pollster now has an all-female crew running the ship. Uh, Natalie, Ariel, and Janie, congratulations. Uh, We are excited to see what you all do with with Huffington Post pollster. Yeah, and that's great. And just to go back further into the archives, uh, Chris and I both have written for pollster. I I wrote for pollster back when it was pollster.com before it was at Huffington Mm -hmm. Post. Did you as well? I did. And uh, and so it was just two guys for a while. And then I started writing about women and the vote and uh, the issue of the you know single anxious women that was the title of my first post about how uh, women are presumed to be not unmarried women presumed to be non-voters anyway so that's part of how we're all here together in our this sound booth as a result 
yeah. that post at Polster.com. And now Polster.com is seen by millions and millions of people and run by three ladies. So that's all pretty great. That is exciting. I also got my start from Polster.com writing. I took chunks of my master's thesis and Mark would let me run, like condense them down into 800 words and run them on, on his site and throw charts and things in there. And that's how I first got a lot of my youth vote research in front of big name political consultants who otherwise would never have paid attention to like a 25-year-old woman That's writing right. polling memos. So he gave me my big break, and I am forever grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, it goes – I mean, we're spending a lot of time on this, but that's okay. There is, it goes to show, like, both for podcasting or for writing online, you know, you know, rather than waiting for somebody to say, hey, what do you think? You can just go and say something. And Put it out there in the it. universe. That's right. Exactly. Um, but with news that there is an all-female crew running the ship at Huffington Post Polster um, this week, uh, as we'll talk about in a moment, Donald Trump uh, having some issues with the polls, um, not quite loving them as much, um, but gave a speech reasserting that his favorite pollster is his wife, Melania Trump. So, you know, welcome more to the crew. I advances guess. <laughs> in female pollsterdom. She's also part of the welcome, team. Welcome, <laughs> Melania. Welcome. So this week's top lines: New polling suggests Ben Carson is positioned to knock Trump out of the top spot in Iowa, and he also takes the lead in a national poll. Is this the end of Trump? We will discuss. Um, also, how is Hillary Clinton's campaign faring in a post-Biden, post-Benghazi, post-first debate universe? Pretty well, it seems. But we'll talk a little bit about how sample frame and how you do your survey affects dramatically uh, whether or not Hillary Clinton is far out in the lead. We'll dig a little bit into what's going on on Capitol Hill. Um, Last week's Benghazi hearings didn't really win Republicans much praise from the media. What did the polls tell us about the hearing and Clinton standing on the issue? We also had Export-Import Bank reauthorized on the Hill, but a new budget deal is getting bad reviews from Paul Ryan and House conservatives. Is Boehner going to go out with a grand bargain bang? We will take a look at all of the polling that can help you untangle what's going on on Capitol Hill. CBS and YouGov has some fresh data on campaign finance. Do voters think their own party Parties are too beholden to donors? And is this an issue they're ready to go vote on? And finally, it's Halloween. Candy corn turns out to be quite polarizing. We will take a look at the data. <laughs> so it, we're recording this show on Wednesday. It's before the Republican CNBC debate. Um, so you're probably listening to this after the debate or maybe during the debate or as you're getting excited for your debate watch party, perhaps. Um, but I think still, by and large, the main story is going to be unchanged, barring some tr- actual fist fight <laughs> on stage, which could happen. You know, so we're not ruling that out. Um, but well, the big news that's been happening now for the past couple of weeks, and you see it even more now, is a Carson surge. Trump, as folks who've been listening, had a little bit of a deflating of his bubble a few weeks ago, but then he bounced back up because Trump cannot be defeated. And so he bounced back up. But now there are some polls in Iowa and, importantly, nationally that show Carson surging. He's just been on this slow, slow rise for a long time. I mean, what do you make of this, Kristen? So, yeah, it's fascinating. His rise is really impressive. Um, the mom- Monmouth poll that came out uh, earlier this week. Back in July, Monmouth had Ben Carson at 8% in Iowa. Um, After the first debate, they went back into the field, and in August, he was at 23%, and he's now at 32%. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeb Bush, who's been up on the air in Iowa, um, he's 
still at 8%, which is roughly where he was back in July. Chris Christie's still at 1%, roughly where he was back in July. Carly Fiorina had a big bounce um, in August. She went up to 10 points, but she that's sort of deflated, as we talked about on last week's show a little mm-hmm. bit. The, the Fiorina bump has, has faded, and she'll need to have a really strong performance to turn that around. Um, Rubio has has also seen improvement in Iowa, but Donald Trump, you know, he he's fallen off five points in that Monmouth poll. And then you take a look at the CBS YouGov poll um, that they conducted in early states, um, Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. In New Hampshire and South Carolina, Trump is just so far out ahead. And it sort of makes sense that Carson's base of support comes from very conservative evangelical voters. That's not really what the New Hampshire electorate looks like. Yeah, but then why is Trump ahead in South Carolina? I mean, this is, you know, something you've seen in a few other polls. Des Moines Register and Seltzer, who we've had on the show, had polls where you saw people concerned about Trump's religiosity, yet at the same time, you know, there are folks who are very conservative who are voting for him. And, you know, and so people are trying to make sense of that. He's not, he doesn't track with what we expect to see out of a religious, quote unquote, religious evangelical sure. candidate but like also, Mike Huckabee. But also remember that in 2012, you know, Rick Santorum didn't win South Carolina. Right. Newt Gingrich did. True. So, you know, South Carolina's electorate is is an interesting it, – it's not the same as Iowa. Got it. Um, and, you know, it's it's very conservative. But I think it's – the makeup of who a South Carolina primary voter is is different than who an Iowa caucus goer is. Um, what's fascinating to me is actually that if you take a look, you know, this CBS poll, this was CBS YouGov um, that's showing Trump and Carson tied 27-27, trailed by Cruz at 12, Rubio at 9, and Bush at 6, and everybody else 3% or lower. Um, you know, CBS is still doing their you know, telephone polling, CBS New York Times partnership that's been around forever. Um, NBC still has their partnership with Wall Street Journal where they do traditional research. But as Margie mentioned, you know, you've now got NBC SurveyMonkey partnership doing polling in early states. And here you have CBS YouGov doing polling in early states. It's very interesting to me that now these news organizations, they still have their national traditional phone polling studies that they've done forever, but they're kind of supplementing it with this online research. And, you know, CBS has YouGov, NBC has SurveyMonkey. I guess ABC doesn't have one, right? I mean, I suppose ABC is Washington Post. ABC is the traditional one. I guess there isn't a I don't know if they have an online component right. yet. Right. So, I mean, the question is why? And we should, you know, get some folks on the show. Maybe they'll be willing to tell us. Maybe they won't be willing to tell us. Are they trying to sort of experiment with the online, wean everybody off the telephone and see, well, if the online works, then we can, you know, move everything over here to save costs? Are they just want more polling all the time? Are the newspapers not interested in online? Yeah, it's it's, it's curious to me. And I and also what's, what's sort of unusual is when I think about if I have a client and I'm trying to figure out, do I want to do online or telephone? There are a ton of different factors that go into that decision. But if you're polling in a political race in a state, I always lean and, – and you you won't find someone that's a bigger advocate of using online polling where appropriate than I am. But I'm usually an advocate of doing phone polling – calling off of voter lists if that's at all possible. Right. And and for national work, I think online is great. But then for state by state, you know, because you can have that list, that voter file, I always suggest if you can swing it, 
do the phone polling. And this seems to be kind of the opposite, where they do the phone polling nationally, but they do the online polling in the states. Right. But some of the states, when they're looking at primaries, they're not actually using a voter list. They are, you know, it depends on the poll, statewide poll, which we don't have broken out here. But some state polls, when we've looked at this, when we compare, you know, other New Hampshire polls, some of them are just calling folks and saying, are you voting in a primary as opposed to... The self-reporting thing. Right. As opposed to looking at past primary history or looking at party reg or at least making sure you're registered in the appropriate party. So... Mm -hmm. You know, that varies from state to state dramatically. Caucuses are different. They swell a lot based on what's going on in that state that year on, uh, as opposed to a primary. Um, and you don't really capture a lot, any of that nuance in the in a national poll. Yeah. And, and on, on the Democratic side, we'll talk about in a second, the, the way you decide who is, for instance, an Iowa caucus goer. Um, there are a million different ways to do it. And there's no right answer about what's the best way to do it because – who a likely caucus goer is changes all the time. Right. Um, but how you determine that can dramatically affect the results of your survey. But we'll get to that in just a second. Yep. Um, so at a national level, CBS New York Times um, released their uh, big national poll uh, earlier this week. And it's the first national poll, I think perhaps ever, showing Carson up over Trump nationwide. It has Carson at 26, Donald Trump at 22. Um, It has Marco Rubio at eight, Jeb Bush at seven, Carly Fiorina at seven, Ted Cruz at four, Huckabee at four, Kasich at four, Lindsey Graham at two. I thought that was interesting. Lindsey Graham beating out Chris Christie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Beating out uh, Chris Christie at at one point. I guess uh, America was not thrilled with Chris Christie talking in the quiet car. Well, this is yet another reason why I'll never run for office. (laughs) Guilty. Screaming in the quiet quiet car? Yes. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, not screaming, but being told to be quiet while in the quiet car. Oh, my gosh. I am a quiet car purist, but also a coward. I've never had the guts to tell someone, like, you're in the quiet car, stop. Yeah, I just shoot glances, but I'm a coward. I never, I never say anything. Um, but so, so how does this all stack up? Well, it doesn't seem like anybody's going to be knocked out of the main debate. Um, who, you know, who would surprise us um, that they're going to have, you know, the ten f- top ten still up in the the sort of main two hour debate. Um, and uh, but, but as Margie mentioned, you know, Donald Trump, he's sort of recovering a little bit from that that dip he had a week or two ago. But Ben Carson's rise has just been, you know, the very, very, very fast. I mean, if you looked at the Huffington Post pollster chart on this, you'll see, I mean, everyone's been talking about the Trump surge. The Carson surge is parallel in terms of its the slope. slope. <laughs> you know, the slope of the line is the same, right? Um, so while Trump is still ahead, even despite having one poll that shows Carson head on average, Trump is still ahead. You see the same basic slope and trajectory for both of them. Trump bouncing around a little bit now, maybe Carson, not so much. While other candidates like Fiorina not lifting, you know, can't totally get airborne. Rubio on a very super, super slow, gradual increase. You know, some of these other folks bouncing around toward the bottom or headed toward the bottom. What's really fascinating, though, is Gallup, you know, as we've talked about, Gallup's not going to be doing any more of the horse race polling, but they're still polling on the net favorables for for these candidates. So do, do Republican voters like or dislike a whole host of different um, Republican candidates. Ben Carson's had the biggest bump in favorables um, that since that first debate, he is now plus 60. That's not 60 percent are favorable toward him. That is plus 60 if you subtract the unfavorable from the favorable. I mean, those numbers are insane. Um, 
any politician would do anything to have numbers that look like that. And um, the change from the first debate to the present has been a net bump of 24 points, That's which is massive. huge. Carly Fiorina is the only other candidate that comes even close to having a bump like that. She went from plus 14 to plus 33. I mean, plus 33 is a great fave unfave yeah. to have. Plus 60 is like out of this world. Um, but this whole question about the Trump bump and then it's sort of stabilized, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh, well, are voters, are voters disliking Trump? Has he ticked them off finally? I don't think that's the case. And this Gallup data seems to suggest that it's not that people are disliking Trump. His net favorables are still plus 24, and that's five points better than it was before the first debate. I mean, despite these last two debate performances and all of the nutty stuff that he said, his favorables are still very good and they have improved. Um, so it's it's not that people are Republicans are deciding they don't like Trump. It's that they're just gravitating toward Carson because they really love Carson. I think you have, you know, you have some people who are just they've decided they don't like Trump and it's harder to convert while you've had some folks in the middle who've moved toward him. I think every uh, it seems like a lot of Republicans like Carson at least a little that he you know, projects mm-hmm. this kind of civility that I think a lot of folks really seem to like. Um, and it, it's interesting who's at the bottom of this list. John Kasich, who had a strong first debate performance, you know, tapering off here, losing some steam. Chris Christie has had uh, quite a bit of increase, but he started off, you know, down, net unfavorable among Republicans. So he's just now moved to, you know, to still one of the least popular folks in the field, but it's just been an improvement. And Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush has dropped in favorability. And we've talked about this before. I mean, Jeb Bush has had, you know, you've seen a lot of news reports out about this, about what he's doing with his staff to try and uh, cut staff his salaries and and infrastructure in order to uh, keep the campaign going and more streamlined. I mean, he he seems to be struggling. And this is just another example of that. Well, we'll see how the debate goes to debate goes on Wednesday evening. Yes. So and if we get confused about who to turn to for some (laughs) polling about the debate, we can always turn to America's pollster, Donald Trump. (laughs) In addition to being a candidate, he's also a top pollster um, or a top believer in polls, particularly if those polls say that he's doing well. So we love this quote that actually it was pointed out to me, at least, from uh, Dan from the podcast Digest, where we, Chris and I, were on a couple of weeks ago, um, and I think it was in C- uh, USA Today. A quote from Trump that I just think is incredible. Uh, he probably, you know, I'm a believer in polls. I only like them because I've been number one for a hundred days now, which is pretty good. How often do you see polls are wrong? Not too often. <laughs> well, his tune is changing, isn't it? His tune sure is changing in Iowa. Um, Well, so let's talk a little bit about the Democratic side, because last week was a very kind of turbulent week of news. I think in our last show, we were still speculating about whether or not Joe Biden would stay in the race. We now have our answer. uh, Vice President Biden will not be running for president. And so now we're just the the poll kind of gets the polls all have to change a little bit. The previously if pollsters were asking, who would you vote for um, with Biden in the mix? Now the polls won't ask that. Um, So in order to compare apples to apples, you know, a lot of polls asked the Biden supporters, well, who would you support as your second choice? And so you could reallocate people. I believe one of the one of the polls that came out, they reallocated Biden, um, Webb, Chafee supporters all just as undecided um, because they had begun the poll Um. before. 
Um, Everybody starts dropping out. People start dropping out. Um, but, but Margie, what's what's going on on the Democratic side? Well, I mean, you know, and we've said this before that the the press narrative of you know Clinton's in free fall was a little bit overstated, and then the Clinton rebounds and you know is a superhero, turned everything around. Maybe perhaps a little bit restated. That said, she did. She's had a great couple of weeks. I mean, the debate she had a strong performance. Even folks who said they became more favorable towards Sanders said that she was the winner of the debate. Uh, and then in this, you know, nationally, you see um, uh, a change again in the slope. If you look at the Huffington Post, uh, Huffington Post pollster average, you could see that Sanders' rise, which had a very steep incline, then leveled off pretty substantially over the last uh, uh, last couple of weeks in New Hampshire. I think this is in New Hampshire. Nationally, you see Clinton having a rebound. Now, again, it's not this gigantic spike, but it's a bit of a rebound. So you can see that, you know, she's had a good couple of weeks. You see that reflected in the polls in the individual states as opposed to nationally. Um, the same pattern, I think, has been holding now for a while where Sanders is going to be stronger in New Hampshire. The CBS YouGov poll shows Sanders up at 54, Clinton at 39. Uh, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the purple Bloomberg St. Anselm poll, and that also showed uh, Sanders up in New Hampshire. Um, but in Iowa, Clinton is up a little bit, 46 over 43 in Iowa. In South Carolina, she's been strong for a while, uh, 68-25. That's a pretty big difference. Um, You know, I think if you talk to folks in the Sanders team, they would say don't look so much at the national poll. Look at the state polls Mm -hmm. because, you know, she's so well known nationally. The Sanders campaign hasn't run any television advertising yet while the Clinton campaign has been up on the air for a while. So these, you know, expect these polls to change as, you know, stuff starts to happen. The Sanders campaign just hired a pollster. Is that right? I I think I saw that on Ben Tulchin. Yes. The former pollster for Howard Dean, right? Yes. Yes. Ben Tulchin, who is a veteran of a variety. He worked at GQR and he was also at uh, Fairbanks where he worked on the Dean campaign and um, now has ha- had his own shop for a while, and he is working with the uh, Sanders team. Fun stuff. Well, what's fascinating is there were two polls that came out this week about um, the Democratic race in Iowa. And so the one, as Margie mentioned, the CBS YouGov showing Clinton and Sanders pretty neck and neck, um, Clinton 46, Sanders 43. But then Monmouth released a poll in Iowa that showed totally different results. And so uh, where they showed Hillary Clinton at 65, Bernie Sanders at 24. I mean, there's a huge, huge difference between Sanders down by three and Sanders down by 41. Yeah. Um, and so people were going, well, what's what's going on here? Um, and what what some folks are sort of suggesting, the, the methodologies are so different. So CBS YouGov, the way that that one works is you go to people who you know are in Iowa and then you ask them, do you intend to vote? In, what's your likelihood to vote? And you say definitely, probably something rather than you say, OK, uh, if you're definitely you're probably going to vote, are you going to vote in the Democratic caucus? Are you going to vote in the Republican caucus? Are you not sure? And then so only those people who kind of make it through that gauntlet then get asked, OK, well, who are you going to caucus for? The people for? round up, you know, people that they overreport their likelihood of doing socially desirable behaviors, voting, giving to charity, whatever, right. exercise, so, you know, vote, all that. So self-reporting is not perfect because people overestimate their likelihood. So you wind up capturing too many people. On the other hand, the Monmouth poll, the way they did it is they got a list of registered Democrats who have voted in one of the last two Democratic state primaries. So you have to be not only a Democrat and not only a registered Democrat, but you also have to have a history of having voted before in one of these very, very, very low turnout 
primaries, which is not the same thing as being a caucus goer. Right. So some people were sort of suggesting, well, is the Monmouth poll looking too narrowly at hardcore traditional Democratic activists types um, rather than the sorts of new voters that someone like a Bernie Sanders might be pulling into the process. So yeah. YouGov may be casting too wide a net. Monmouth may be casting too narrow a net. And that's why the results are 40 points apart. And it absolutely, given the breakouts we've seen in other polls, independents, newer voters, mm-hmm. people who don't vote in traditional, you know, they haven't voted in primaries before. Those are Sanders voters. So a poll that looks at people who've registered and also younger people, too, who are less likely to have that vote history of past primaries. They may not have even been eligible or they were just young people who right. were not voting. So, you know, all of those things are going to are going to cha- make your results seem a little bit less, uh, it's a little bit more clean, a little bit less Sanders. That could still be the right outcome in terms of turnout, but that's just a difference in terms of, you know, who it captures. So there, listeners, that is your methodology moment for the week, how to be a smart consumer of polls when you see two numbers that look very far apart. Um, there's probably a reason why, and that's what we're here to help guide you through. Um, so what, what else is going on on the Democratic side? Has well, Hillary? There's been this polling about whether or not Hillary has started to make the case that she is progressive and, you know, the, the things she's been trying to argue within the Democratic side. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there's been some change on how you would describe Clinton. I mean, there was one of her strongest lines in the debate was when she said, I'm a progressive. I'm a progressive who like who gets things done. That was one of her biggest lines. That was, you know, something that she uses a real clear difference. She uses a way to differentiate herself with Sanders. And I I can't tell you if that's why these results are different, but they do seem to to reinforce that perhaps. So this is from NBC Wall Street Journal in June. They asked, would you describe Clinton as a liberal, moderate, or conservative? They also asked the strength, very or somewhat liberal or conservative. And only 9% would call her very liberal. This is just among Democrats. Uh, half say moderate. 22% say somewhat liberal and half say moderate. It asked again in October, um, fewer than half say moderate and more now, 14% say very liberal, 27% say somewhat liberal. So is this a result of people who were watching the debate and said – because this was ten fifteen, so I guess – there was going to be some overlap during the debate. I don't know if these field dates were 100% during the debate or before the debate. I'm not sure about that. Or is this a result of people seeing her policy positions in the you know run-up between June and, and October where she was releasing a variety of policy, policy positions on a variety of things? Or is this a reflection of you know the, the bounce that she gained overall due to a variety of other things? You know, we, we don't know, but it is interesting that uh, the extent that you see Democrats th- calling her more liberal is probably a good thing because since that's something that has you know helped Sanders, people say that they agree with his position on the issues. So it makes sense that if she's considered a little bit more liberal, she would do better with uh, Democratic primary voters. Uh, well, the other interesting polling coming out of Iowa, at least, uh, part of that CBS News battleground tracker, um, they asked some interesting questions about issues and campaign finance was one that came up in this data. Um, so in CBS Yes, poll of Iowa Republican primary voters, um, Republican caucus goers, uh, they asked the question, do you think the Republican Party is currently paying too much, enough or not enough attention to the needs of, and they said the wealthy, the middle class, the Tea Party movement, large campaign donors? Um, and you wind up where 53 percent of Republican primary voters think their party is not paying enough attention to the middle class. That's a pretty striking number. Um, But perhaps even more importantly, you have uh, 
you have 38 percent of Republicans who say their party is paying too much attention to the wealthy. Now, I also need to point out there are 6 percent of Republican primary voters who think their party's not paying enough attention to the wealthy and not paying enough attention to large campaign donors. And I would love to focus group those people. Right, I went, That's one of those numbers where I'm like, how many of you are actually people that hold that view? And how many of you are people that are just trolling as right. you're taking the survey? Or like, confused, you know, not too – are you too much, not enough, enough? Which one are you asking me about? I mean, we don't know, right? Yeah. But um, you rarely see zero. So six, I guess, is sort of – Yeah, the... you can't get 100 percent of people to take a survey and say that they think the sky is blue. Right. So. <laughs> but the thing that was interesting about YouGov, uh, this YouGov poll – so they did three states. And we've talked about this poll now a couple times. But they did three states, Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And for the Democrat respondents, they said if the next president is a Democrat and you could choose one of these things that they were certain to accomplish, which would it be? And – the list is a little all over the place. It doesn't have like create more jobs in your hometown or anything like that. But it's a list that, you know, defeat ISIS, raise the minimum wage, raise taxes on Wall Street, put more restrictions on guns, reform campaign finance or make public college free. So it is some of the things that are, are up for debate on the Democratic side, but it's not kind of an exhaustive list of everything. That said – can't reform the campaign finance system, you know, wins in Iowa among Democrats. It wins even by a little bit more in uh, New Hampshire among Democrats. And it doesn't quite win in South Carolina. So there you have actually guns and the minimum wage a little bit higher. But it still wins in those two states, which I find interesting since we've talked about on the show how campaign finance is rarely a vote driver. And if it becomes more salient, that that would be actually quite interesting if that becomes a bigger thing this time around. Now, they didn't ask – they had different kinds of issues on the Republican side. So they didn't even ask about uh, campaign finance reform. I guess the pollsters assumed that it wouldn't be a big deal on the Republican side, but maybe they should have just to see what would happen. But they did ask these questions that Kristen just mentioned. Do you think the Republican Party is you know, paying too much, not enough, or what? Uh, too much attention to donors and so on? And in all the states, people feel that uh, the Republican Party – is paying too much attention to large campaign donors. Again, a majority in New Hampshire and a majority in South Carolina. So, um, so it's it's something that I think both parties need to pay attention to. I think the the, the big number for me that is a big wake up call for Republicans is that a majority of people in their own party don't think they pay enough attention to the middle class. And so in, in Iowa, as I mentioned, it's fifty three percent. If you look at the numbers for South Carolina, sixty eight percent of South Carolina Republicans think that their party is not paying enough attention to the middle class. 62% in South Carolina. So in you know New Hampshire and South Carolina, almost two-thirds of Republican voters think their party needs to pay more attention to the middle class. Right. So good lessons here for everybody. Uh, so now we'll turn our attention to what's been going on in the Hill in the last week or so. Um, so first up, last week was the uh, Benghazi committee investigation. Um, and we didn't really talk about it that much on last week's show. Um, but there was a lot of polling out before the hearing that gave us a picture of what Americans were sort of expecting to see out of the hearing. And the headline is really that Americans think that you should be investigating Benghazi 
thought that the committee would probably be political and thought that they probably couldn't trust Hillary Clinton on it either. So it's sort of like an eh, this is going to happen. You should investigate it. I don't know that I trust either side in this. And so first we can take a look at some data from CNN. Um, CNN released a survey before the hearing conducted October 14th through 17th. And by the way, before we dig into the numbers, Margie pointed out <laughs> that um, in the release from CNN, there's a big in like bold letters, embargoed for release and then just four question marks. So <laughs> it's always fun when you catch like a document that has like TK in it or like insert thing here. You know, <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. I've CNN. Done it too. Everybody does it. <laughs> <laughs> but now we're like we're really excited. Like what? What? When were they supposed to release this? <laughs> what or, is it that they're going to release? <laughs> ooh, do we have do we have inside info on this poll that's now ten days old? Um, so in that CNN poll, though, fifty nine percent of people said they were dissatisfied with how Hillary Clinton um, has handled the issue of. Ben- Ghazi's. It's thinking specifically about Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the time of the attack. Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way Clinton has handled this matter? 59% dissatisfied. This is not a, sig- a really significant change from 2014 when this question was first asked, and 55% were dissatisfied. So it's gotten slightly worse for her, but but not dramatically so. Um, the survey also asked, when it comes to congressional hearings on the Benghazi attack, do you think Republicans have gone too far or have handled the hearings appropriately? Bear in mind, this is from before the hearings. Right. Before the hearings, 51 percent said they thought that it had been handled appropriately. Um, but then they also said, do you think the House Select Committee on Benghazi is mostly conducting an objective investigation or is mostly using the investigation to gain political advantage? Seventy two percent of people in this survey said they thought it was mostly using the investigation to gain political advantage. And, so, and those were split sampled questions. So it, but the, even yep. so, you pro, you have people who are going to have both, of you know, conflict, seemingly conflicted views at the same time. So th- there are going to be people then who say Congress handled this, Republicans handled this appropriately, and they're also using it for political advantage. I mean, that's what that that's what that means that, you know, that saying there, and part of it is because whenever you ask about political, is this too political? It doesn't almost it almost doesn't matter what the this is. People will say yes. You know, yeah. we see this a lot in all kinds of questions. You know, is it appropriate is a little bit of a lower bar. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on here. But we'll see how this changes as people kind of integrate what happened during the hearings, if they integrate at all, frankly. And does it matter if you watch just the clips of the hearings or all 11 hours oh, of the hearings? Oh, my gosh. I, I don't normally take pride in being uninformed. I don't think it's a good thing. But I take a lot of pride that I did not watch 11 hours of those oh, hearings. No, that seems pretty miserable. I was in, a, I was at a hotel like and trying to follow on the screen at the hotel during lunch. And there weren't a lot of people trying to watch mm, the hearings not, in my hotel. Not the hot, hot ticket. <laughs> no. And I guess, you know, I'm curious to see if this comes up tonight, I mean, people are going to listen after the debate, mostly likely, but does this come up during the debate? And is that seen? And how? I mean, does it come up as, you know, people talking about how the Republicans should have handled it better? Or are they going to, you know, try to use it as a, you know, all sort of running against Clinton during the debate? I mean, we'll see how that mm-hmm. plays out. The one other final note about the CNN poll, um, the crosstabs are really interesting. When asked, you know, do you think that the investigation is being conducted uh, just to con- be objective or is it to gain political advantage? Um, So Democrats and independents overwhelmingly say to gain political advantage, but actually a plurality of Republicans say so as well. Yeah, 49 percent. So even even the Republicans were like, yeah, we kind of know 
we 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 kind of feel like that's what this is about. Um, NBC Wall Street Journal last week, prior to the hearings as well, um, released a survey. They found that Clinton's favorables, um, 39 percent favorable, 48 percent unfavorable. Um, They found that 27 percent of people were satisfied with Clinton's answers on Benghazi before the hearing. Forty four percent were not. Um, But then only 29 percent said the GOP investigation is fair and impartial. Thirty six percent said it's political and 35 percent said they had no idea. And pretty high don't know enough for both of those questions. And I think it's because they offer that as a choice. I mean, this is something we don't always talk about on the show. But when you offer people a don't know, more take it than if you don't offer it and you ask, they have to volunteer. They don't know. Um, And so here they said, do you, you know, if you don't have enough knowledge about this issue, just say so and we'll move on. And, you know, about a third, a quarter to a third in both those questions say, yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about this. So the other big news going on on the Hill this week, um, just early early this week, Congress passed the reauthorization of the ex- the House passed the reauthorization of the Export Import Bank, um, which was is sort of a big po- point of contention with many conservatives. And now that the news is out that Paul Ryan says he will be running for Speaker, that election is coming up. Um, are Republicans excited about Paul Ryan as speaker? Um, NBC Wall Street Journal's poll from last week, you know, they said that 63 percent of Republicans said they were comfortable and positive with the idea of uh, Paul Ryan being elected to be the Speaker of House replacing John Boehner. Twenty eight percent said they were skeptical and uncertain. Now, bear in mind, talk radio has really turned against Paul Ryan, every, you know, in the last week or so. And so I wonder how these numbers would look with slightly fresher data. Hmm. Um, And then the other big question is at the moment there's a budget deal in front of the House that would do – Small things in terms of entitlement reform. It would do some things in terms of, you know, managing the sequester and changing um, defense spending levels. And it would extend the debt limit through 2017. So we would not have to hear about the debt ceiling or anything. No government shutdowns and stuff through 2017. Actually, I don't know that government shutdowns are totally off the table, but at least the debt limit would be off the table for the next year and a half. Um, And it's getting a lot of uh, a lot of pushback from conservatives. I think most of the Republicans running for president have come out against it at this point. Cruz thinks it's an abomination. Rubio says he's against it. Um, this is definitely going to come up in the debate. This then. is definitely going to come up in the debate. Um, but this is sort of the House Republican leadership finding a compromise with Obama. The current House Republican leadership, so Speaker Boehner, finding compromise with Obama and trying to push things through. Is this going to... Is this making life easier for Paul Ryan? Because, hey, we just get this out of the way before he becomes speaker. Boehner's the bad guy, but he runs off into the night. And right. Or is does this, like, create a bad scene for when Paul Ryan begins? And there are two poll numbers that give kind of contradictory insights into how this could play out. So in that NBC Wall Street Journal poll, um, they asked, "Do you would you prefer a speaker who's likely to seek compromise and get things done? You know, the grand bargainy type stuff. Or... Are you more likely to want somebody who would stand up for principles even if it means you get less done? In that question, 56 percent of Republicans say they would prefer uh, – of Republican primary voters say they would prefer the stand up for principles compared to 40 percent who say they want someone who would seek compromises. Now, you say that Bloomberg actually, Margie, they, has has sort of a different take on this. Right. So we did – this. Now this is in New Hampshire, so maybe be a little bit different nationally, but this is the purple Bloomberg uh, St. Anselm's poll. And we have a little bit more language there, and you talk about the consequences. So it's not just about, you know, getting more work or less work done, but really talking about what the actual outcome might be if you 
don't compromise. So the question would read, uh, the next speaker needs to be able to negotiate with the president, Democrats, other Republicans to keep our country fiscally solvent and on the right direction. Shutting down the government isn't good for the Republican Party or the country. And then the other option is the next speaker should be a true conservative, will stand on principle on issues like defunding Planned Parenthood or raising the debt ceiling, even if it means shutting down the government or putting it into default. So you're really giving a little bit more specific. It's not that one question is better or worse. The the broader question that was in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, I mean, that's you know frequently how the issue gets boiled down, right? That's how people, the lens through which people look at it, that's how they hear it. But when you talk about some of these specific outcomes, then it's quite clear that actually people want, Republicans want someone who will compromise. There you have two-thirds of Republicans in New Hampshire say, you know, the next president should be able to negotiate. Now, this may be different if we're talking about primary voters nationally or in South Carolina or in different states. But I think it's important when we're looking at these data, or if you're a Republican, quick to say, you know, we need someone who's going to stand up for principle, standing up for principle as a value, you know, detached from what that means, Sounds great. I think for a lot of Republicans, when they see what that actually means in practice, they're going to say, well, maybe that's a little bit too far. And it's also about, you know, is there a small segment of the party that's very loud? And so, you know, not all Republican voters weigh in um, equally in terms of how how vocal they are in contacting their member of Congress and saying what they want. And so even if only 30 percent of the party is really on the like shut down the government, stand on principle um, type point of view, the, the sort of Tea Party type point of view, that's a very loud smaller segment. Right, right. And uh, the last thing on this is that uh, Gallup has been doing some analysis on speakers and outgoing Speaker Boehner and speakers past. And we joked a little bit last week about how speakers' favorability rebounded after he resigned. Um, they but, did, <laughs> but, but it was only among Democrats and independents. Yes, right. And he's unpopular with Republicans. They released tracking among uh, of his favorability among Republicans. And it's just been on the decline for a long time. He was popular until just recently. I mean, he really, you know, as all of this, uh, all the various conflicts that you've seen on the Hill have really become, you know, uh, well, well covered, his uh, popularity has really uh, taken a nosedive. Now, what Gallup notes, I mean, this is particularly interesting because they say this may be true for Paul Ryan. That's not actually true for all speakers. That was unique to Boehner, that Nancy Pelosi did not uh, her favorability among Democrats didn't take a hit when she was Speaker. Gingrich's uh, favorability, despite him being, you know, controversial at the time, his pa- popularity did not take a hit with Republicans when he was Speaker. So this is something unique to Boehner. Is it now unique to our new political climate, or is it just unique to Boehner? I guess we'll see what happens to Paul Ryan, or unless it becomes at the last minute somebody other than Paul Ryan. The the final factor that'll pl- uh, play into how pleasant being Speaker of the House is for Paul Ryan is how he's able to try to hold that whole coalition together on the right, um, including folks who both were and were not fans of Speaker Boehner's tenure. Um, And that boils down to a little bit of, you know, how much of the party right now says they support the Tea Party movement. So back in 2010, about 52 percent of Republicans said that they considered themselves supporters of the Tea Party movement. And for all the discussion about, oh, gosh, has the Republican Party moved to the right, the Tea Party movement has actually become less supported by Republicans. You now have only 38 percent of Republicans who say they support the Tea Party movement. When you split that out by ideology, the Tea Party movement was supported by 63 percent of moderate Republicans back in 2010 when Republicans swept in and the Tea Party energy made 
John Boehner, Speaker of the House, um, that had fallen to 42 percent by the time you get to um, the more modern era. So support for the Tea Party has fallen not just among moderate Republicans, but among conservatives as well. And there's been a lot of discussion in the last couple of weeks about how the Tea Party has a lot of leaders who are not – there's there's no way – there's no win that they like that their whole thing is just to send out emails raising money from people by like stoking outrage with promises that can't be kept. And so now you even have the Freedom Caucus on the Republican side on the Hill. The Freedom Caucus is the people who disliked Boehner the most are taking credit for getting him out. The heck no caucus. The heck it? no caucus. But even they are now sort of the subject of Tea Party TM you know, like the, the corporate Tea Party <laughs> saying, like, these guys are selling us out. Give us money so that we can tell them to stop selling out, which just goes to fundraisers and consultants and doesn't actually ever do anything. Wow. It's really depressing. But um, and it I, seems that some t- people may be waking up to the idea that the Tea Party movement on the right was originally about ideas and is now – it seems people are breaking away from the label because the label is now associated more with these, like, scam packs and things like that. Well, that, right. That was what I was going to say, right? How much of this is – the label suffering as opposed to the ideas behind the label and the views. I mean, this doesn't mean that Republicans are becoming more moderate That's or less conservative. It just means that they're less likely to identify with the name Tea Party. And part of that could be just you have new people you know, saying, well, I'm not sure what the Tea Party means anymore. I mean, that's always been an issue. Like, what does it actually mean to be in the Tea Party? You get different answers when you talk to folks about it. So I, I think it's always been a little bit amorphous what the label actually means. So I'm not surprised that people are now moving away from it. And if any of our listeners are really interested in learning more about this, um, Emily Eakins, who is a a researcher now at the Cato Institute, but she did her whole dissertation um, as a PhD student at UCLA on studying the Tea Party movement and just is like a great source of information about misconceptions and, and sort of things you might not expect about the Tea Party movement. So last but not least, happy Halloween, Margie. <laughs> right. Um, the only thing scarier than, <laughs> than potentially shutting down the government, right, <laughs> is candy corn potentially, where it's a little bit divisive as a as a candy. So what what does what is Halloween like in TKPK? In, so in your your neck of the woods in TKPK, it's I'm amazed at how incredible it is actually because I didn't you know I lived in a city before I lived in DC and people lots of kids came to the door but you you know you didn't really do that much to your house occasionally there'd be a house on the block that would you know go crazy with lights and decorations and that was basically it my entire neighborhood goes all in like people dressed up as zombies like things jumping out of you know the the ground like people setting up a haunted house on their front lawn i mean it's uh, uh, people reading spooky stories to the kids i mean i've never seen and i think it goes on in other suburbs i think this is like a suburban thing i don't know but it is incredible and so last year Lucy with her friends who were all three at the time, I think it was they were a little freaked out by it. So <laughs> I think now they're now they're really ready. I think they're like a little bit more mentally prepared for to be for the scariness. But it's um it's pretty intense. I mean, what's it like in uh in your neck of the woods? Uh so I- I'm now at this awkward age where my friends are doing one of two things. It's either they're doing the like mid to late twenty something Halloween costume party, like Let's all, you know, drink some kind of like strangely flavored colored punch and like 
you know, wild stuff that I'm a little too old for at this point. But then also my husband and I don't have kids. So, like, our friends are like, well, we got to go out trick-or-treating with the kids at 6. And, like, I'm, I feel really awkward that I want to be like, can we just come, like, trick-or-treat with you and your kids? Like, not not for us to get candy. I just want to, like, not be sitting at my house by myself. <laughs> um, like, I, <laughs> I need an alternative. So we're – I think we're – we have settled on there is going to be something uh, – a Wes Anderson-themed Halloween party that we may go to. So oh, we'll, we'll see if we'll see. How, but I don't know what my costume will be yet. Mm. This is one of those things where I always get great Halloween costume ideas in April. Mm. Like April, I'll be like, oh, I should totally be, you know. That's what Evernote is for. So you just keep a running tab of that just for when you need it. And it's just there. For when you, I, you know, I did that when it came to naming my fantasy football team name. I had mm. clearly put a reminder to myself from like f- February, name your fantasy football team. But then like the thing that was after it was like garbled nonsense. And it's, I think it's because I told like I was doing the thing like, Sir, like Siri, Argle bargle. Siri, remind me on August 15th to name my fantasy football team. And like I don't even know what I said because it's just it was words strung it was together. That I'm like, oh, great. So there, there are flaws in that plan as well. Um, but we, we took a look at some polling. Of course, um, about candy. So candy is the big thing that, uh, you know, on Halloween, um, everybody's excited about or not, I guess, if you're parents. <laughs> is that 35 million or 3.5 million pounds of candy? I can't tell, but it's... A, it I think it like says 35 million pounds. That seems like a heck Although of a lot. Although there's a typo, of... million is spelled wrong on this infographic. Well... <laughs> we didn't make the infographic. We're going we're gonna to make some changes and send it back to you, uh, infographic we'll, person. We'll, we'll mark this up and send it back. Um, so the polling itself, the YouGov, the YouGov did not do the infographic. They are they are not responsible. But YouGov did do the poll um, asking Americans what they think about candy. Um, so candy corn, the iconic Halloween candy. Um, oh, this is what there will be 35 million pounds of. 35 million pounds of candy corn? Ugh. Okay. Gross. Well, Margie is in the twenty percent who hate candy corn. Yeah. I mean, what's the what's to like about it? I, I'm in the forty seven percent who could take it or leave it. I'm not like opposed to it, but it's not the thing I reach for. And then twenty eight percent of people love it, and six percent of people aren't sure how they feel. That seems strange. That seems I guess strange. it's it's six percent. It's just like the six percent who think Republicans are spending not enough time talking to their big donors. So <laughs> <laughs> it's the same people. <laughs> Focus group these people. So when it comes to trick or treating, um, the most popular thing people want are chocolate bars or chocolate candies. Um, only eight percent prefer fruity candy. Six percent prefer sour candy. Four percent want real fruit. Ah, maybe that's what we should do at TKPK. That would make me number one mm-hmm. mom if I gave out like real fruit, organic, like. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I do have some organic lollipops because, you know, I got to keep up with the Joneses. So. <laughs> organic lollipops. Oh, yeah. That oh, my God. Them. I love it. Uh, actually, I so I looked at the crosstabs of the survey, of course. And sour candy gets a huge boost among the under 30 crowd. So uh, hug surprising. a millennial. If you see anybody come to your door who's probably too old to be trick-or-treating – if they are a millennial, give them sour candy, and that will make them very happy. Okay. Get your Sour know. Patch Kids ready. I think I have those in my goodie bag as well, my bag of Halloween candy for sure. But the number one candy by name that people say uh, is Reese's Chocolate Peanut Butter Cups. 25% say that's their top candy. 17% say Snickers. 8% say Kit Kat. 6% say Twix. And everybody else 
every other candy is the the Bobby Jindal or the Lindsey Graham of candies. It's too, now, too small to. <laughs> I mean, maybe Reese's are like Donald Trump because some people simply cannot have it. Okay, so if you have a nut allergy household as I do, then you can't have a Reese's oh, peanut butter yeah. cup. I have to basically swipe. Lucy's candy and go through it before she's allowed to eat anything because of a nut allergy. And so that's why you have a lot of people putting out teal pumpkins. And that means we are allergy sensitive at this household. So if you see a teal that's pumpkin, what that is. that's what that is. Now, I find that a little confusing because there are so many different kinds of allergies that I, I don't know what it means to be like, okay, we've got you covered. Does that mean you don't have red number five? Does that mean you don't have flour? Like, it's just there's so many allergies. It can't just be nuts, although I'm assuming that's mostly what it means. But at any rate, I'm going to do what I would do regardless of teal pumpkins, which is just snatch the bag before anything could be eaten and go through go it. Go through the vetting process. Throw out half of it. <laughs> keep Bring half to the – bring a quarter to the office. Throw out half. Give the last <laughs> quarter to Lucy. <laughs> Well, that sounds like you are going to have a fun Halloween, though. I'm 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 pretty excited to hear stories from from the TKP. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome to come, Kristen. There'll be plenty <laughs> of people who could probably need some help manning their you know pop up zombie. Well, no, houses. as you mentioned, maybe maybe what Kristen and I should do is walk around giving out like presents to the the parents. Like yes, like we're here to be your support staff. Parents. That's right. Here's, exactly. Here's some some. Everybody needs a little treat. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, key findings from today. Uh, America's pollster is worried he's slipping to number two. Can he pull out a win in the debate? And how often will he talk about his polls on stage? Uh, Clinton is staying above the fray and higher in the polls as a result. Campaign finance may have its moment. And Paul Ryan seems like he may have his. Meanwhile, there's yet another divisive issue sweeping the country candy corn. You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters. Margie and I are at Margie O'Meara and I'm at Kay Soltis Anderson. Find us on Facebook where throughout the week we'll be posting interesting polling results we come across. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcatcher is. And don't forget to write a review if you like the show and haven't done so yet. Yeah, we had a great one from someone named Blubby last week. And so that was great. Blubby, if you're listening, thank you. And anybody else who has a great, it was a really good review. So if anybody else has a review, we really appreciate on Stitcher or iTunes for sure. Thanks.